0: Hello, my name is Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. In this episode, we present the second part of The Working Traveller, a panel discussion that took place on Wednesday, October 21st, 2009, in
1: the Mewa Loft. Well, if I come back to that slide, that was in Banska Street, in Slovakia. And you mentioned Alexander McQueen and... Uh, But Kenzo did a whole collection some years ago of fashion which was entirely based on Romanian designs and Romanian textiles. And he had pictures of Romanian family all in their original costume to promote it. Um, What he did, of course, was as a couturier, he adapted those ideas and colours as well, so bright flowers all together, and put them in a modern collection. Now, whether that's a way to try to keep traditional work, I, I doubt, but it does make people aware of the heritage from other parts of the world that could be used in, <coughs> in uh, our own fashion and design.
2: I think that there's a leveling of the playing field for artisans and craftspeople in very remote areas. They can always get to a <laughs> cyber cafe, they can see their, I mean, they can see what we're selling their things for, they can be quite um, involved and part of and they, they love it they, I mean we get, have these wonderful pictures of all the embroiderers heading to the cyber cafe, they have a digital camera that the foundation has given them and, and they're downloading their photos and they're, you know, it's, it's wonderful they're showing photos of the embroideries that they want to send and mm-hmm. along with their new babies that are born and the new marriage that's happened and it's, it's quite um, I love that I absolutely love that use of technology. I do feel that there's a certain leveling that's happened because I'm I'm a trader. I'm a uh, middleman, a dealer, really, and, and really, um, and uh, probably doing it differently. But dealers historically have had the hold, and the imp- they hold all the information and can, you know, as we talked in my lecture, on the first lecture, can sell. Uh, acrylic or synthetic fibers as Thai silk, you know, and and the the, the embroidering and all that it first came to deal of, now they can actually look it up themselves. They can find out things and I find that very (coughs) wonderful, how available technology is to people.
3: There's another little take on this. Um, One of the women that I represented in my lecture the other day um, is Samabai um, Kaju from Ludia in in Kutch in Gujarat. And since the earthquake um, and since her village was destroyed, uh, since the Gujarat earthquake, uh, her her village was rebuilt according to traditional techniques, um, unlike the other villages in that region. And there is a strong draw for tourism. So she makes sure that... The women, that she and the women in her community make traditional embroideries because there is a cachet in wearing them, <coughs> which they insist that their daughters, granddaughters, um, her daughters and granddaughters always wear, and traditional jewelry. Then we get into the question of is a sort of is that Disneyland? Um, you know, she then uses that to motivate uh, an income that she's able to the income for women is much higher than that of men in in her community and in many of the other villages because of that she's very enterprising but she does create, they do still create traditional embroideries and other textiles for their own use, and they do still wear traditional um, uh, uh, jewelry, etc. But you, know, you wonder how bastardizing that is or how manipulative that is, and does it have any place? I mean, we're talking about marketing here, so I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate a little bit well, here. One here, thing I love about
2: up. Ludia is it's come from them. Yeah, It hasn't come from anywhere else. They saw an opportunity. The earthquake, which is yeah. an opportunity for some and not to others. But I, I thought it was quite wonderful. Ludi is a, it is a bit of Disneyland, but uh, as <laughs> those of who have gone to India, we, we always take our group there just to kind of get an idea, perspective of what happens. But it did come from within that village. They did kind of make that decision to see an opportunity and, and run with it.
0: And And so are
2: there, the
3: the question is, are there other ramifications of, I mean, are there other examples of that globally? And does it make sense, or is it just that one coming from within itself, um, you know, is that a use, going back to that again, that initial question? I think that there's
2: a lot of examples globally of Westerners going in and creating tourist villages. Mm. I don't see a lot of examples of it coming from within a culture, and that's what I quite love about the Wooliness and <laughs> out of controlness of ludia but
3: but you do, for example, you were talking about um, Romania. I haven't been to Romania, but in in uh, Bulgaria and in Hungary, you certainly see villages where the women create their own embroidery. I mean, they they maintain a tradition because it draws, and that's coming from within their own villages. Um, it because it draws in a kind of tourism mm. that that wants that, and is there a is that a Viability. I mean, we're just talking about ethics here and, and, and use and creation and maintenance yeah, of culture versus innovation and change.
0: Let me re- well, rephrase this, this question and pass it on to, to Sheila. And if maybe our audience has a comment on this, the pressure then to create an embroidery or a craft <coughs> style is coming from trade. How is that different from the pressure to create an embroidery or craft style that's coming for, from the family mm, or yeah,
1: from inside? Well, I would have thought it was very different if it comes within the family. But then why does it come from the family? There must be some reason that's pushed them to continue that. I don't know that it's always a good thing. In um, Romania, there's a Hungarian enclave, and they still wear Magyar costume. So one of the girls said she'd put her costume on for me to photograph her some grade, and then she asked for $4 once she put it on. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that changes the whole thing. It's, it's just that they've got this idea that it's something that, that tourists, not just tourists, but foreigners are interested in, and that they can make money out of in that sort of way. Well, that can only <coughs> be really bad. I don't see any good in that at all.
4: Um, yeah, we don't see anything good in that, but it's a totally natural thing. You're uh, benefiting. We're going there, and we're being entertained and whatever. So I know it's, 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 a, it's a very ugly from our side, but I wonder what, what you do. You have to set up something else where they can make money because we are benefiting by it. we be, We are being entertained by these people. We are being... We're going there for... for there's a lot of good uh, will here, and but a lot of our travel, I feel, is because we are looking for the exotic. We are looking for the whatever. And uh, I would love at some point for you to address that part of the, the ugly side of the working traveler. And, and you know, what is... What is so wrong? It's offensive to us that she wants $4,
2: but... I actually don't find it offensive. So I know you do, but I don't find it offensive. I just... It's just part of...
1: I didn't find find it offensive. I (laughs) found it very sad.
5: Yeah. Yeah. What do you feel about just the over-collecting of the best textiles so that that they don't have some of their history left? And will they ever, like, Mm. you know, it it happens, it's inevitable... um, might not be those of us here, but then they don't have a reference for that. And one of the things that um, I think in India is there's some beautiful museums. Do they ever get to visit them? And and then I'll give you an example. Um, the organization American states when I was in Latin America, you know, these they wanted to work with these people, and they, they just had nothing left because they would sold everything, and nothing was there, and so. We went to the Amano Museum. It might not have been the best. It was uh, the first time. It was great that they uh, they were prejudiced against the white people that were there, and I was one of them <laughs> who brought them. And it was actually a great feeling. So they said, you know, we'd like to invite the artisans in, and we will open the drawers that we never open for uh, a foreigner. And so they opened those drawers, and they let the people see these pre-Columbian pieces and these old pieces, and they would they close the museum and they were there all day, and it was the best, most exciting thing that they'd ever had, and they got out postcards and <coughs> pictures of it. So I thought that was really interesting because they lost it all. They they sort of didn't know where to go and they wanted to keep reading. So I thought that just as an example.
0: So the question is, involves uh, the exquisite pieces that have been collected? And yeah,
5: and, and where are they going and then how can you help them get it back and, and see what they did in the past, if, if they have no reference or, or if it's minimal reference.
1: Well, firstly, of course, they can't get them back because nobody knows really where they've gone. There's um, a remote valley in northern Pakistan where the women wore a dress called a jumlo. It had 600-odd goddess in the skirt, very, very unusual dress. And in this valley, I wanted to see one of these, not anything more than to see it. There were none left, and it discovered that dealers from Peshawar, European dealers, went to Peshawar in Pakistan. They couldn't get into this Northern Valley. They didn't even try. Um, but a couple of Afghans went there every year and bought up every one of these dresses they could buy, sold them to the Western dealers in Peshawar, and they've all gone to Europe. And the, In the valley now, they have none. And the next generation won't even remember what they were like. Mm-hmm. And that really is, is very sad.
6: Um,
1: That's history. Mm-hmm.
5: You know, how can an aspect of that in closer to the culture be preserved, not, it's not a Pollyanna thing. It's really a cultural idea. This is
3: from whence you came. One of the things that I talked about in my lecture about Shrujan, and one of the things that I admire about it is their traveling um, collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've created the collection that I showed, a photograph of part of the of 1,100 uh, master mm-hmm. textiles, but they also have a collection of uh, traditional ancient textiles, and they have a bus and they take it from community to community and show the women what they their history is and uh, the other, that was just happening when I was there earlier this year um, and, I, and I witnessed it and they take a questionnaire and each person that comes to see it they set up a big chamois on, a big tent and each person that comes and sees the collection is required as part of the uh, agreement that they fill out a questionnaire and when they are uh, illiterate and cannot fill it out themselves, they are given someone to scribe to answer the questions about what they saw. What does it mean to them? Do they remember yeah. other pieces like this from their history? Were there examples of pieces made by this by their grandmothers or whatever? What are the meanings of the textiles mm-hmm. that they saw? What um, what were their uses? What were you know, what was the mythology or the legends around them? And they are Collating all of those answers, and I think, I mean, that is such a good example of what can be done. Yes,
7: exactly.
3: uh, it's so admirable. No, it's not being done globally, but it's the beginning. It's being done there, and it's something that could be done elsewhere. It could, we could take that as an incipient, you know, a, cho- a choice um, for what could be applied to other cultures. Now that came entirely from within them. That's a, um, well, no, it's an Indian, but the the. The, the visionary of that is from from an, another part of India, but who's lived in Kutch for the last uh, 50 years.
6: Just commenting on the on the uh, word of preservation. Apart from the actual pieces of the, and the physically preserving, I also feel there's a need for all of us to come together and the, and preserve these designs into the minds of these craftsmen. I mean, so that it continues. I mean that. That continuity is very, very important uh, rather than just having the community lose it and then having that in the uh, museum and then having them to go to the museum and mm-hmm. trying to recreate. So uh, that, I think, uh, I mean, I don't know what's the best way to do it, but then we should also be, m- I mean, moving towards that point as how to keep that in the mind so that it's it's continuously done and that's the best way of keeping it alive, I guess.
7: This session is so great because it's a meeting of minds, but for me, I'm feeling some discomfort because it's making you look at some of the realities of this stuff that the future is perhaps not what we would like it to be. And the Snow Leopard Trust has an example of something that when I first heard about it, it filled me with such great hope. One of the issues around all of this preservation is that it ultimately has impact on not only culture but on the environment. And the mm-hmm. snow leopard predates on our herds of cashmere goats and if or, and sheep, okay. So if I'm a farmer and this snow leopard comes and kills my goats, what? I'm not pre- gonna kill this pretty animal? Of course not, my gosh. Self-defense, obviously. The snow leopard tries six years ago developed an insurance system and I thought this was actually where you were going where well, what, what where, where what they did in one um, uh, of in I think it was two pilot villages in northern India they said look if a snow leopard comes and kills one of your flock we will have you be part of an insurance system and you will pay a dollar and in return, Because what happens is when the snow leopard comes, they go and they poison the kill, the snow leopard kills the animal, they go away, and then they come back and they eat it. And so what the the shepherd does is they actually poison the kill, and that's what kills the snow leopard. If you agree not to poison the animal, we will reimburse you for the loss of your animal. Now what a concept, we understand the concept of insurance. And the Snow Leopard Trust was smart enough to know to let the, the individual village handle this system. So they sort of explained what the dynamic was. And instead of going in and saying, okay, this is now going to be the new rule, they did it in one or two villages. Incredibly successful because the villagers had actually seen a decline in the snow leopard population and knew that they were an important part of the whole ecosystem. Two years later, the insurance policy was a success and is a success, and what they are doing is letting the villagers themselves now sell it to the other villages. And part of what this has in turn is something, I just did this story in Namibia that I haven't written about it, it is now called predator-friendly farming and fibers. And people are adopting predator-friendly tactics. for this very reason. And I will tell you, this to me is where I think positively about the fact that we are able to start to implement this change with the view of the big picture. So forgive me, but that's just a a great thing. I apologize. Now, what was that question? (laughs) (laughs) That
0: was a great bit of information. The question question is that when the the panel travels, it's usually a... Yeah, we're we're coming from the the first world, we have education, we have worldliness behind us, and we're usually seeking an encounter, generally on the village level, with an artisan or a farmer who often hasn't left the balance there. So what's the dynamic that's taking place that we're seeking, and and can you tell us a little bit more about that? I'm
7: gonna probably take... It is amazing how much, uh, speaking just for myself, how much my ego, gets in the way of not only you know, just day to day living but particularly in travels and, and by my ego I'm going to explain it as such when I go to these places I have to um, I will never not be an American you know um, but I want to become as receptive to as authentic an experience as I can and what I find is that, you know, the first rule of thumb is, you better be able to swallow whatever cup of tea, um, <laughs> plate of goodies that gets, you know, passed in front of you, you know, and I, I mean, I say that kiddingly, but that's really very true, it is, it, it is their handshake, it is their handshake, um, in, in almost, you know, many, many cultures, but also the idea that I am curious about them, they are equally curious about me. And I, I went to interview this woman in Tanzania a couple of months ago, and after the second question, and you, know, you can't deny the fact that we're from two different worlds, so let's not even, you know, let's just accept that. But after the second question, she just immediately wanted to know, well, where's my husband? Well, that's not all my questions here, you know. And so that exchange of our humanness, and this is where I talk about the ego, that exchange of humanness as a working traveler is the sooner you get to that point is what opens the door to, I think, um, being able to integrate. And and because I'm so frequently with animals, the animals are the great, um, not, not a equalizer. That's that's the language that initially passes through the animals.
0: Do you actively seek out locations that have less contact with for lack of a better term, the first world? Do you see, seek out the more and more remote?
7: Yeah, part, I mean, certainly by the nature of my business, you know, I'm going into areas that require a tremendous amount of land to sustain animals so therefore I'm almost by definition, you know, Rural, you know, rural, you know, times times two or three, although, because I am charged with writing about all aspects of the fiber community, I'm just as apt to be, you know, in a farm, you know, 15 minutes out of Christchurch in New Zealand, so I don't, you know, I'm not always um, in search of an outhouse. That being said, I I understand that perhaps the roots of the culture, you know, fiber roots. Um, Are going to be that much more removed, Stephen?
3: Yeah, I I would say the I've many, 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 many times in India been um, the only foreigner they've ever seen. One of the issues that I deal with uh, for myself, I'm working in communities that are often impoverished. There is a, a level of hospitality where people will always give me food. Always, That's a, a cultural mandate for them. So they, 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 they must be hospitable, and they must share with me. And here am I coming from a privileged background, and I must accept it. Mm-hmm. But then am I diminishing or denying them, their children, uh, food, sustenance? I overcome it by, as I travel, stopping. I'm often going to a very remote village. I stop at a market on the way and buy food Um, lots of green vegetables or or things that I have and I put them in my pack I say well I would love to come but I have these vegetables that are going off you know um, or or, or this stuff is there any way that you could uh, cook it for me or prepare it for me Um, in that way it doesn't in any way lessen their sense of pride because they're doing me a favor to get to to use this food that would otherwise go off
1: So Linda was talking about a cup of tea. It brought back memories of tins of tea in remote mountains with globules of yak milk fat in them. Yes. You get used to eating it. And I, there's something used to I can't know it was now. it I got out of my mind. Anyway, um, my experience is slightly different because when I go into these villages, I'm always asked the same questions. Um, people obviously are very curious about me, but they always want to know where's your man, how many sons have you got, and how old are you? So we start with where's your man. Well, I try to draw a picture. I do a lot of drawings. I found that the easiest way to communicate. I try to draw a crashing plane. Well, of course, to them it's a mosquito or something. They don't, and I can never get that message across. How many sons have you got? Well, I've got one son and three daughters. So I draw these sort of pictures you see on the doors of looms with one little man and well the daughters don't count at all so I'm really not very good from that point of view how old are you well this is what finishes them off I go well by the time I've got to 60 or 70 they're doubled up with laughter and, and we're there there's no problem then at all and I always know because I learn as I go along the names of the stitches so when I get there I look at their embroidery and I say ah oh, such and such a stitch very nice or something like that uh, and that's how I begin. But a lot of it is just stupid acting, really, and drawing pictures.
0: <laughs> but is this a dynamic that you actively seek out in your travels? I would say so, given the number of places you've been. A place where the contrast between your world and their world is extreme. at a extreme.
1: Yeah, yes. Really remote places I, I, I've been to. Because that's where these customs survive. Oh, I know what I was going to say to Stephen. When he said that they haven't seen... Um, a European. What about our Raj? What were we doing? What What were, were we all get, out there?
3: Didn't uh, get there. Yeah, didn't get where I'm mm. about. I
1: thought we had these administrators all <laughs> over, all over India, every village. No. No. Mm. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> Defending the British Empire.
0: Oh, sorry. Yes, Lisa.
1: Uh, I just have
4: a question for
5: Sheila, and it's just from my own experience. I've travelled with uh, photos of the family. Yes. Places
4: I've lived
1: with. I was just wondering, do you find yeah. interacting is better? Yes, photos, uh, better? photos are, v- are very good. In fact, um, you almost see it would be a good idea to take a photo of a rubber team. When they ask if you've got any sons, you sort of take <laughs> <have> these <laughs> burly great <laughs> young men. But I never actually did that. But, that's, but if you haven't got a son, I mean, you've, you've, you're best to invent one
2: for sure <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. and a religion <laughs> you gotta have a religion
7: <laughs> I have no husband I have no children and I'm a professional and, and I will tell you all, all the sort of wonderful questions and I was going through I was going through the market in, uh, in Delhi with a wonderful wonderful friend and everybody's trying to sell me everything and he quickly explained that, no, she has no money. She has no husband. <laughs> <laughs> and they all they all backed off. <laughs> and I thought, well, now there's an interesting way to get around, you know, that dynamic. But I was at that point was just of absolutely no use to them whatsoever. <laughs> and and yet, what a great what a great launching point, you know, Sheila. You really are, you really do bring up, which is, isn't that such a, a valuable view on how you know the picture is looked at. That the religion aspect, as you, you know, what's what's your religion? Um, it is, it is certainly how we not only look at ourselves, but also every time any Westerner walks into these communities. I always say, you know, we may be the only picture, the the only touch, breath, smell of of Canada, the U.S., or the Western world that they may see, and I find it an incredible honor but an incredible burden that I must hopefully show to them. Certainly the politics of, of where I come from have played a huge part, and as the working traveler, you know, what do we, what do we feel is, is part of our mission? It's, very, it's a very challenging question.
0: Because their alternative
7: is television and they watch that, that's exactly
6: right yeah, yeah my oh, the, fir- the first time I walked into the village my experience was completely different than Europe, yeah. because I somewhere belong I have a commonality with them and I was not welcome at all <laughs> they did not want me uh, they did not want to have me with anything to do with them at all I walked in as a, as a student uh, where my college had, had assigned me a job to uh, kind of go and study their textiles, their problems that they were facing at the moment, uh, and come up with ideas and drawings and sketches and color schemes so that it would kind of help them to, I mean I mean market their saris that they were doing at that point a bit better. But when I I mean, walked into them and then I stayed on for a couple of days, went back and forth from Calcutta to the village again and again, and then finally came up with my drawings and my colors and scheme. And they just literally threw me out. They they were not convinced at all with the patterns and the designs and the colors that I had made. And they said, these, these are all all uh, not going to work at all. And I mean, I, the word they told me that they did not want to waste time on me. So. It was a part of my project which I had to get graded for and I had to pass out. If if I showed nothing, I would not pass out. So it became a challenge, really. my My back was literally pushed to the wall and I had to do something. So as I was out, I was trying to walk down the village road and trying to think, what am I supposed to do about this? Then suddenly I think, I don't know from where I met this guy who actually was a good weaver but he was under under underprivileged because he uh, one foot of his is not that strong so he was not a very quick weaver he was a good weaver but not a very quick quick uh, weaver. So his problem was he never had much work. So when I started talking to him about my problems and and everything he kind of for him it was a win-win situation because uh, anyway he didn't have any work so he agreed. He said, okay, I'm going to do your samples, but you would have to provide me with the money and all the raw materials. So I said, yes. And I went back again to the, uh, I mean, the village stayed with him over weeks and months. And then we came out with, I think, 11 different kinds of saris. And which was showcased later and when, But what I want to showcase is that I had to literally prove myself to them that what I was serious because initially when they reacted like that i was very upset but then later on over the years i realized that they were reacting out of insecurity because they because for me to come with a new pattern and a new design was very i mean easy and tell them to why don't you do why don't you do this but the, for them it meant they would have to stop working for a uh, for something that they were already working on and mostly all the i mean the weavers they work from mahajans who are the Middleman, and which meant if he started on my d- designs, he would have to stop totally wo- working for him. And which meant uh, he was insecure whether I would continue working with him or not. Because if I went back to the, s- s- I mean, the city and not 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 continued the way I the work, uh, he would lose his, uh, I mean, job. He would not be retaken back into that Mahajan's uh, group. So, what I, and what, over the years, I mean, we had to, con, I mean, consistently proved ourselves. I mean, we had to con, constantly make ourselves felt and uh, prove ourselves, no, we are there. We are not running over. We are there. We are, we are, I mean, coming back with more orders, more work. And to consistently work with one weaver, whether, I mean, to take all his flaws and to adapt and to, kind of teach him quality control and all that but then to but to always share and go up go back and forth back and forth and it took us almost three years to kind of convince them we even we went to the extent of buying a plot of land making a house over there staying there to kind of convince them no we are part of your your community it wasn't very easy for us. It, I mean, they didn't take us for granted at all. It was We had to constantly show them that we are there and we are here for a long, long period of time. And But once we could break the ice, I mean, as you all have felt the welcoming gesture, it was very smooth. I mean, over a period, after three years, oh, I think seven years we have been working in that field so it it gives us five years over the period of five years from two looms we have graduated to 300 looms now and they just opened the doors for us now we have viewers coming over to us saying that i want to work with you
0: right
6: so so the question the question just to
0: pick up again is um uh, focusing on that the contrast between ourselves as travelers and then seeking out we all seem to be seeking out almost the most remote location possible and what, what is the essence of that, that dynamic?
2: Well, I don't know that that's my notion. I'm seeking craftspeople, so it's not always remote, not always the remotest. Um, sometimes it is becomes that because you're on this quest because somebody's told you there's this master weaver, master embroiderer, somebody who understands dyes you know, up in Hunza so off we go up to Hunza. A lot of information we get is futile and wrong and <coughs> uh, there's a lot of traveling that's done um, with nothing at the end of it and uh, but <coughs> oh. what's the washing <laughs> <laughs> I need lunch. <laughs>
1: uh <laughs>
0: the contrast between
2: yeah the really remote remote. no i don't think i'm ever seeking the really remote i think sheila's seeking the really remote i'm a little bit uh nervous about maybe too remote um but i do i end up remote because i'm following a lead and all of a sudden i'm you know in north assam or
6: in the middle of a bomb blast. In the middle of
2: a bomb blast. <laughs> and I don't actually seek that. I'm not... <laughs> looking, I'm not... Good. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> but I don't like that kind of... I'm not seeking the uh, unknown or rural. It just happens that that's where it leads to. And I'm I'm quite... Um, I, I don't, I, unlike Sheila, I don't travel alone. I travel. I try to bring as many people along in the Jeep as I possibly can. <laughs> go on, I Morgan, like And I love
1: the thrill of danger.
2: Yeah, and I, I, danger and, uh, see, <laughs> I, I'm totally not that. I love socializing she, 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 and I love being in a Jeep with a whole bunch of people that you just go, hey, come, we're going here. <laughs> but um, no, I would say for me, it is trying to find the, the, the person. And when I, I am trying to seek that craftsperson person out that I may find some information out from or may learn from, um, or maybe, you know, right now I'm on a little bit of a tiny bit of an obsession, as you might know, of airy Silk. So that's seeking us, uh, pushing me to all kinds of areas from Ethiopia to um, to Assam, to Orissa, to wherever that I could find out about Aerie, because I want Aerie uh, in in, te- in a fabric, so um, that's what pushes me, and I end up re- remotely going, uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is, I, am I okay here? Is it, uh, yeah, I don't see danger, no. Lisa? So how, once you get to this village, how do you introduce yourself to the
4: past people? Whatever. More coming
2: to these people, I usually are these people I, I um unlike who doesn't travel with an interpreter, uh no. I I yeah I do. I try to find an interpreter. My language skills are, are when I when I'm that once I'm there, I actually don't I find my levels of communication quite okay. Drawing, uh charades. Um, I do try to learn. I learned this from my cousin that you, there's certain words you've, you've got to learn in the language mm-hmm. to get along, and I do you know, write it down and learn it, learn it, learn it, learn it. But I'm, I can't grasp fluency. So I do have a translator that I often then let go after. I, I, I'm not. That's not needed because that can sometimes be a barrier, um, as much as the language is a barrier. It's a barrier I'm more comfortable with than being interpreted. But, uh, yeah, that's how we
4: And work. then from there, how would you introduce what you want to do, like, to see the crafts or to find them or
2: tell them Seeing the crafts, I, I come well with pictures and book, you know, photocopies from books and so forth. What, I, what our concept is, so it's not simply that they see me as a dollar sign is what i usually need interpreting a little bit those kind of uh, more uh, larger um concepts about do they need and meet us there we've heard that they would love to work with us and and we try to get all that concept stuff down of how we work and we're not just going to place you know thousand dollar or five thousand dollar orders over and over and immediately and not care about anything as far as quality and just accept whatever they send us you know that's not all that has to get explained to an interpreter and then when we start working on the um actual whether it's a spinning whether it's a yarn or whether it's a fabric or a dye or a plant or whatever then we that's i'm usually okay on my my own but english is a lovely language to have because there's Uh, often smatterings of it everywhere and so you can kind of learn some of theirs and they know way more of yours Can
7: I ask a random curiosity question of Sheila I was interested
2: from all of your textiles and your embroidery from Eastern Europe have you traveled in the Balkan states in the former Yugoslavia and if so how are
7: the embroidery techniques being preserved or are they doing okay
1: Yes I have, no they're not (laughs) <laughs> um it's it's really um sorry i've just put a cough in um with the balkan wars the wars between uh, all the various Yugoslavia, former yugoslavia territories embroidery really has has virtually disappeared mm. very sadly, but it has mm. i went to what well, i've been to um most of the countries bosnia Herzegovina um, Croatia um, all that area while it was still under communism it was very interesting to travel I had to camp with a family of gypsies at one stage because they, there was one Soviet hotel and Soviet hotels of course were dire not only were they dire but they were very expensive so I got myself put up with this um, gypsy family and I had this bed and there was a curtain by the bed and the gypsies lived on the other side of the curtain. I and mean, amazingly, I was woken up in the morning, they had France 2 on the radio. I couldn't believe it. This is the main radio station from France, of Paris. That was what they had on their radio. Um, but it was, it was the same sort of situation I was talking about yesterday, where they were in complete transition. The modern box of flats, there were cars, and then there were the remnants of life before the war, really still there but very little in the way of embroidery I did, I did buy a few things there and find a few things but they were really just isolated examples there was no tradition I could inquire about or find out about and really most of what we know about the embroidery in Texas and that area comes from Edith Durham you know about Edith Durham Edith Durham was an English woman who went out there for her health before the First World War and um, she wrote several books which are now very expensive to buy because they're rare and In High Albania was one and uh, she wrote all all about that whole area and she got involved in relief in the First World War and medical care and there are now streets named after her in um, Albania She's particularly popular in Albania she fought a lot for the freedom of Albania the independence of Albania and she collected some wonderful textiles which are mostly in the Bankside Museum Bankfield Museum in Halifax in Yorkshire, a very obscure museum, but they 've got uh, most of them that 's about all I can tell you about embroidery there Thank you. they did what I mentioned last night too that they had different embroideries, different costume for the Christians, sorry the Protestants and the Catholics in certain villages you distinguish yourself by a different costume. The Albanians also had these marvelous Circular coats called Jubia. Um, they have some of those in, in the collection there. And um, there's a book written about them by Laura, Laura, the name will come to me, Laura somebody. Um, and they're still there, but that's about the, all we've got really from that part of the world.
0: Take one more question before we break for lunch.
4: Yes, just following up on Michelle's comment about taking textiles from countries and you know, their best. I think I don't know much about museums, but I think there is a movement towards returning things to countries, like our First Nations things are coming back here. Is a similar thing happening with with textiles and and crafts? Is there any movement Mm -hmm. to return things to
1: their countries? Our main thing is the Greeks want the carvings back we keep refusing. They've even built a lovely new museum to house and, them. and we won't give them back. Elgin marbles, we won't, we won't give mm-hmm. them back, I'm sorry to say. But yes, there is a, an attempt to get, to get these things back. I'm just uh, wondering because the relative value of text they're smaller pieces and yeah. they're not probably as high profile so is it, is it, would it be harder to get them? Well the Pitt Rivers I know are giving back a lot of because they're a big ethnographic museum. They're giving back a lot of things, particularly, for example, body parts. They were given body parts in the 19th century belonging to Aborigines, and those they're giving back, and I think uh, some of the textiles as well. Mm -hmm. There is certainly a feeling that we shouldn't have these things, Mm -hmm. except when they are very precious, then we won't part with them.
0: Mm -hmm. Can we uh, divide that question in two? Are we talking about giving them back to countries? or is there a possibility of giving them back to individuals? Because this came up in a previous symposium, mm-hmm. and it was quite an intriguing question.
1: Well, as an individual, of course, it's easier if you were to give things back to the individuals who you bought them from if you go back to the country. But if you don't, you can't send them. Well, certainly not the sort of places I went to. Use. There's no nothing like a postal service. I don't know, really, that you could do that.
0: Charlotte, do you want to pick up on that question from what came up? 2 years ago when John Gillow who's a collector had collected embroideries from all over uh, Sindh and Pakistan and India and Norjahan Begovic suggested that they should be returned to, to the, the villages to the villages
2: Yeah and it's ideally that is what should happen but it is very tempting then for them to just sell
1: it to another museum. Yes, yeah. so I think you have to wonder what would happen if we did give it back. I don't yeah. think yeah. that it would be treasured in the village. I don't think.
6: Uh, it would it would achieve the the and also, would the present generation of crafters would they want it back? On I don't know. I don't know whether they would. Know I what think to in do India there's they. no
2: capability yeah. of managing. Okay. The museums need a lot of help, and there's no funding, and there's not even a, they can't manage their own collection. Textiles are very. Much more fragile than, than sculpture so as far as in a collection there's there's a India museums have some fantastic <coughs> collections that are just rotting because they're not curated they're not looked after and preserved and that's a huge issue that Woody Amrita is trying to tackle um, Mukherjee in, in Calcutta but a lot of energy there is energy coming from, from a grassroots movement to help museums be able to manage. And properly look after the, particularly the textiles. But I think it's a, I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime.
0: Okay. Michelle, and then Margaret
5: after. I want to say there is an example which is quite unique in um, Bolivia. There were three men that single handedly, and th- they <coughs> got together these three men, one was Canadian and two were American, and <coughs> literally cleaned out village by village, mm-hmm. not from museums, these incredible. Incredible Bolivian textiles, and if anyone knows Bolivian textiles, are quite exquisite. You could see Nilda's work, and so it was just about three or four years ago, if I recollect properly, that the heads of the villages, or maybe there were sons by that time, uh, said that their their women were sterile. There were problems in the village. There was a lot of sickness, and we know it's not necessarily related to that but it was the first time that the United States realized that this had happened with private collectors, not museums. And so there was litigation, actually. There was a lawyer that helped the Bolivians. And all of those textiles had to be returned, and they were returned. It's the very first time that that's happened. Yeah. It's returned
2: when? Like recently?
5: Yes, it's, it's within the last, uh, it, it started about five years ago, mm-hmm. but it took a number of years to get. But they were
3: stuff. still in collections then? Yes,
5: they, they held most of theirs, and they'd written books and that sort of thing, and as many as they could get back were given back. And they weren't given to a museum, they actually went to regions. You know, Bolivia doesn't have great museums. And um, so they were given back to chiefs mm-hmm. and heads of villages because they're very superstitious there about deaths and they look at these textiles as holding power and myths and, and their lineage, actually.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: And it's a, it's a very difficult environment.
7: Sheila, I want to ask you what happened with your collection when it was optional. Did it go to individuals? <coughs> <coughs> Maybe yeah, to
1: so the whole thing is really sad because the British Museum were going to buy it and for 10 years they talked about buying it which meant that as I travelled, I tended to buy examples of things which would be good for the British Museum. And um, they backed out at the last minute. The two people who were uh, arranging everything left the museum, and so much depends on the individual at the museum. And uh, they both left, go to completely different places, so they backed out. Well, as by that time I'd broken my back and I had to move house because I lived in a very big house, three stories high, I had to move to a little house, I just simply had to get rid of these textiles. Every single cupboard in the house, every single drawer had a textile in it or several textiles. And all the kids' cupboards, all the toy trains all the teddy bears had been thrown out and they were full of embroideries. There was no way I could have moved without getting rid of everything. So I sold it all at several auctions, actually. Um which is all very sad, and it, it, it raised about a tenth of what it actually had been valued at. And I just hope that the people who bought individual things appreciate and enjoy them. But what's really sad is that all my research background, i still got, because obviously that should go with the textiles and, and clearly can't. Um, and everything I had has an inventory number sewn in it. So the things that you had yesterday, that you sold yesterday, have an inventory number on a piece of tape. Anybody who asks me about that, I can tell them exactly everything I know about that textile, where I got it, what I paid for it, what it is. Not one person has asked. Not one. Wow. Wow. So they're obviously just not interested. They like it because it's pretty or it goes with the color of the sofa or something like that. I think that's very sad indeed. Oh,
3: it's really sad. So I now
1: have to know what to do with all the research background, which is 25 years' work. We have a a thing called the National Needlework Archive, but that really, as it says, is national. It was really set up at the millennium to preserve British embroidery. And, of course, the things I've got are totally non-British. But even so, they're very interested. Um, And they've taken some things, and they will take... I mean, I've got thousands of photographs of embroideries from all over the world for a start, um, which just, it just seems tragic, just throw them away. And anyway, so that's my next project, what I've got to do. With, probably for the rest of my life, I've got to sort that out.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to part two of The Working Traveller, recorded live at the Maywalk Textile Symposium on October 21st, 2009. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.